Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. People you would reach out to the minute you have trouble. Those people, reach out to them today when you don't need anything. And it's so easy. Drop them a text. Send them a little note. It can be even a sentence. Just say, thinking of you. Thank you for all you've done for me. Of course, some of them will write back saying, are you okay? Because you never reach out to them except when you have trouble. But reach out to them now when you don't need anything so that they can be there when you need them. Networking, job security, career mobility. Get your act in order with this most handy episode. Stay with us. Full Disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompson's, my favorite market at the very top of RVA's Carytown at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name. I'm going to read you a message from Rick Hood, the founder and owner. Elwood's purpose is to feed the heart and soul of our community through local and organic foods, but we also go above and beyond to create personal connections with our customers. That may sound crazy for a grocery store, but it's what we love to do. We have customers that have been with us for over two decades, and we consider them integral parts of Elwood's family. Indeed, Rick Hood is like an uncle to me. You guys have to check it out at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me from NPR's Midtown Manhattan studios is Sri Srinivasan, previously Chief Digital Officer of New York City, Chief Digital Officer of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Columbia University. You've seen him on WABC and WNBC in Manhattan and heard him as well on CBS Radio. You've probably bumped into Sri live streaming himself and his dog from Riverside Park at sunrise. Sir, how are you? I'm great. Um, So nice to be with you again. Oh, it's great. And you remember I first got in touch with you. It was the summer of 2016 in how you, I thought, so beautifully when um, the Metropolitan Museum of Art had cutbacks, announced it publicly to the world and announced your vulnerability publicly to the world. I know you've, you've been hit over the head with this. It's been covered a zillion times since. But you pretty much came out on Instagram and Facebook and said, hey, guys, look, I am a free agent, nothing personal. I understand that cutbacks were happening here. I've done some great things. But... I am open to meetings with everybody. Here's the jump ball. Go for it. What was your thinking? I was thinking that I was not ready for it. It now sounds great because as a result of everything I did, I got lots of opportunities, met some terrific people, got great job offers. All of that happened because of what I did. But when it started, I was not thinking any of those things. I was so nervous to do it because I come from a culture, the Indian culture, where you don't talk about your problems, you don't let anyone know you have trouble, and you certainly don't tell people you're out of work because, especially in India, it's not that kind of culture. So I was probably the first person in my family to ever have been out of work that I knew because most people are in the government services and they just had jobs for life or they'd move on or no one certainly talked about it. So the last set of people I told that I lost my job at the Met were my parents. I also told my kids last because... They would think there's no Christmas that year. So I waited on them. And then for my parents, I waited because I didn't want them to know that their 46-year-old did not have a job. Now, you came out and said, and I'm quoting your letter on Facebook, if you want to invite me to anything, I now have time, including for meaningful cups of coffee and drinks. I'd also love to go walking with anyone available. I try to walk five miles a day. I plan to make it eight to 10 miles this summer, period. And I took you up on that uh, for PBS NewsHour and this idea that we pulled off in kind of how to, um, 
I don't know how to look at it in hindsight, how to lose your job effectively, um, <laughs> hyper-transparently, say it to the world, there's no shame in this business. And I've since become a huge admirer of people who do this with class. You saw it with Liz Heron uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think at um, Upworthy or one of these other publications. I saw it with the media critic uh, from Politico, Jack Schaefer, years ago when he was let go from Reuters. He said something to the effect of, it was not my job to keep. I'm very grateful to these people. Um, in my 20 years of working, I never thought that that would, that would be such an important skill set as kind of a graceful, effective exit. I think that for all of us, uh, nothing's prepared. nothing prepares us for this. And that's why it's so difficult to do. And thanks to your reporting and your story, you did eight minutes on public television, which is an eternity. Uh, you followed me. You also brought in a wonderful young lady who was having trouble with her job uh, search, and you connected us. Through that process, people around the world heard my story. And every week I hear from people who are ready to do some version of what I was doing, but no one's quite done exactly what I've done because no one's as crazy. But it also, uh, you know, I tell people it's not for everybody. Hyper-transparency works within reason, works for certain kinds of people, and you do what you can. There is no formula for this, and do what you can and what works and what feels right to you. I remember you telling me pointedly, desperation really doesn't work on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn, everybody kind of clutches this as, as at the very minimum, it's an address book for professional contacts. And maybe 80% of the people we've never met, we don't know. We figure it's harmless to send a LinkedIn connection request. But you notice when people are either about to leave their jobs or even worse, when they when they do leave their jobs, they start clutching LinkedIn. They they, they buy the, the, the premium tier of things and they start hitting up everybody for it, whether it's an exploratory committee or, hey, look, I lost my job. I'm actively searching. Talk about that. I think that LinkedIn is the most underappreciated of all the networks. It has uh, been bought in the last few years by, uh, by Microsoft. And unlike most big companies buying small companies, they've actually invested and made it better and smarter. And I tell people that we have to be building out our LinkedIn connections when we don't need them, just as we have to build our networks when we don't need them. And that means that then they're ready and available when you do need them. And it's a, it's not easy, again, for everybody. And most people just don't understand LinkedIn and they think it's a job hunting tool, which it is, but it's a career management tool. I want every 15-year-old in the world to have a LinkedIn account and then manage it for the rest of their lives because it's that important and that useful. But people aren't comfortable yet and they're not there yet. So same way that I tell folks, you know, it's too late to figure out Twitter once the plane has landed in the Hudson, same way with your job. Use it today. So anyone listening, please get in LinkedIn, connect with Robin, connect with me, connect with other people and get to use it and understand its etiquette, the lingo, what works, what doesn't. It's true of any platform and work on that now when you don't need it. And the other thing I also learned with LinkedIn is there are so many options and so many features in, in these platforms that we haven't quite figured it out. And that's why in any room you ask, you'll see people are on LinkedIn. They just don't know what to do with it as they're working. Because you have to admit there's a tremendous, like, 55,000 metric tons of, of just dreck on LinkedIn. So much noise. People posting, I mean, any publicist or editor or CEO, whether it's ghostwritten or organically written, just posting platitude in his thoughts in, in 400 words. It's so difficult to separate the value add on LinkedIn from all of the noise. And it's true on every platform. I would say LinkedIn has more potential than most of those other platforms because it's more professional and people are using 
their own names and their real identities for the most part there, unlike on Facebook and on Twitter. So my policy on LinkedIn is pretty simple. I connect with people I already know, people I'd like to know, and people I should know. So people I already know, people I should know, and people I'd like to know. And if you use that as a metric and a way, a yardstick for you to connect with people, I just said metric and yardstick in the same sentence. So I don't know if that's... Can you uh, say influencer also? Just throw it in there. <laughs> yeah, How about exactly. visionary? You don't there identify you yourself as a visionary. No, I don't. And I certainly don't say futurist. I don't say social media ninja, which are things that you see online. Thought leader. I never say thought but leader. But you notice I had no way of easily <laughs> identifying you at the top. I say a guy who walks his dog and live streams it. I didn't want to call you a chief digital officer, <laughs> you know, heir apparent or, or thought leader or thinkfluencer. I didn't have a word for Thank you. And you. I think that Thank you. That is a metaphor. Kind of you're out there as a as a potluck kind of guy telling the world that, listen, I'm trying to figure it out along the way and, and figure it out with me. And to that end, at the very top of your LinkedIn profile, you are asking the world that is connecting with you now to say, help me plan my global social media tour. I'm a leading consultant, speaker, and trainer for nonprofits, corporations, startups, and execs. I'm doing 50-plus workshops in 25-plus cities in 10-plus countries this year. Well, I should start by removing, did I say I'm a leading uh, something or the other. I'm going to remove the word leading from there. You so, did, you, man. Yeah, it's so in your description. Bad. I think you copied and pasted that. Because <laughs> yeah, your so title <laughs> just says co-founder and social coach at DigiMentors Group. Yeah. So I, I think the idea is that uh, partly I got parole from home, which is important. And that's the other thing. You know, in all the stuff we talk about with what we do when we search for jobs or we love our jobs, we have to appreciate the loved ones in our lives who make it all possible, right? So I had a, I have a spouse and family who were willing to put up with the hyper-transparency because it's not easy for everyone. And, you know, you folks came home and did this wonderful TV piece and you shot video as we were, uh, you know, having breakfast and all of that. But that was just an example of the way my spouse supports me. But we all have, if not direct family, we have friends, we have uh, mentors, we have other people in our lives. And I just want to give a shout out to all of those people who help those in career transition and it makes a big difference. And in terms of what I'm doing now, a part of my work is uh, trying to help people around the world. I'm doing this. Uh, I got parole to go to a few countries, and my goal was to do 10 countries and 25 cities in 2018. I'm something like 35 cities and 12 countries already. And uh, all of it is just to say I'm, I love uh, helping people when I can, as I can, in my own small way. And uh, I'm able to do that thanks to folks like you and others who have opened up their networks and these opportunities, you know, to be on NPR and to talk to you. That's pretty cool. But now when you say you got parole, is this to say your, your wonderful wife Rupa is now a warden? She's with the prison system? <laughs> You, no say comment. So, you say it no so comment. lovingly. Yeah, exactly. No comment. Um, take me in the scenarios right now. And I think that the, I, I do believe still in, in, you know, in what you do in your history also as a journalism professor and a journalism dean, that there is something to be said about service journalism. And I want people listening to this out there to take me in the scenarios that uh, one, scenario number one, you are unhappy in your job and you keep putting it off. I need to attend to my LinkedIn profile. I need to freshen things up. I need to go out and have coffees with people. Talk to me about that contingency, that one scenario and what you would do now. Yeah. So and a lot of people who are listening right now are in that situation. And what they don't realize is that Things can change any time. And part of the reason you're not more active or proactive is because you think you will set the timeline or the timetable by which you will make a move. 
And unfortunately, lots of other forces will decide that. And therefore, if you're listening right now, pull out your phone uh, and go into LinkedIn at the moment. Uh, the other thing I tell people, everyone who's listening, again, connect with the people you love, people who've helped you, your mentors, the people you would reach out to the minute you have trouble. Those people, reach out to them today when you don't need anything. And it's so easy. Drop them a text. Send them a little note. It can be even a sentence. Just say, thinking of you. Uh, thank you for all you've done for me. Of course, some of them will write back saying, are you okay? Because they, you never reach out to them except when you have trouble. But reach out to them now when you don't need anything so that they can be there when you need them. As a college professor for 21 years out here, constantly from students I hadn't heard from in a dozen years or more who would write in saying, hi, hope you're well. I need a reference letter for this fellowship and I need it yesterday and it's a thousand words and whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, I barely remember you. Ugh. And, you know, and but this and this happens. Uh, any professor will tell you a lot of your colleagues also. I mean, people who worked, I'm sure you've had this happen to you, where people just reach out suddenly in desperation. And that's where you want to reach out now when you're not desperate. Also, become really fluent in what's happening in your industry, any industry. What are the changes? What are the ways in which the industry is evolving? What are the trends you should keep track of? Make sure you're reading the trade publications or websites in that field. Be a good student of your own industry so that you can see where things are going and maybe there's a even a lateral move within your company or is there an opportunity for you to put your hands up and say your hand up and say can i come in and try this and be someone who gives ideas to your bosses your colleagues someone who loves uh your, what you're doing if you are if you do love what you're doing now it may turn out that you're just in the wrong job at the right industry you could be in the wrong job uh but in the right company but or you know uh, any, any permutation of that, and I'm sure we'll walk through some of those. But in this particular case, if you're dissatisfied, you know there's something better out there for you, work on it now. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Sri Srinivasan. He was previously Chief Digital Officer of the City of New York. Before that, Chief Digital Officer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Same title at Columbia University. He's now a social coach and co-founder at DigiMentors Group, where he is doing 50-plus workshops in 25-plus cities in 10-plus countries this year. Um, I, I do want to ask you, this is a bit of a diversion, but, you know, I like to shuck and jive, right? Um, mm -hmm. I remember this uh, food cart on uh, when I lived in Manhattan. I was there for 12 years on 55th and 6th. It's a famous halal food cart with the white sauce. And the stuff was so good that literally some guy stabbed another dude over it and chased him onto 7th Avenue. And it's part of me that I would go back and forth to my dying magazine job thinking, you know what, it wouldn't be so bad if I had worked in a, in, a, in a Persian food cart or something for one or two days a week just to mix it up, just to diversify my portfolio. I mean, after all, I am a finance writer, and we don't just buy American stocks. We don't just buy bonds in a portfolio. You want to mix it up a bit. Has there been a part of you, and I know that's a very bizarre transition, mm -hmm. uh, who's kind of said maybe it would help me to, to barista or do something completely uncorrelated for one or two days a week? Well, I'll just tell you one thing. Since you brought up the food cart and it is lunchtime in New York, I will say that uh, part of what's changed in New York uh, is the food cart system, right? The, when I was growing up, there were only the uh, dirty water hot dogs that you could get and maybe a pretzel on the streets of New York. Now you can get you, – you're walking through parts of Manhattan and it feels like you're in some Middle Eastern or South Asian country because there's everything from 
the chicken and rice, the halal cart with the chicken and rice to biryani to doses, like everything's now available in the city and it makes for a much more interesting city. And uh, the and those portions are so generous. And and uh, so, as you can tell, I'm hungry. But, the, but I always thought maybe you could do something like chai and chat yeah. in Central Park. <laughs> exactly. People would pay you. No, I've, 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 you know, one of the things I did in the hyper-transparency days was uh, give people a form and tell them uh, to tell me what to do next. And 1,400 people filled in this form. And at the worst moment of my life, there were all these ideas. Some of them were very good and then some of them were awful. But among the ideas was, you know, be a, open up a cafe or uh, work in a, uh, work in a, you know, do something like start a club or things like that. I did, when I was younger, certainly think about working in a bookstore because I thought that that would be a, a lot of fun and I would learn things along the way. And I've also thought about when I had extra time on my hands, I would think about, you know, uh, because you you said barista, but working in your favorite restaurant and watching it from the food service side, uh, the customer service, all of those things that you need in any business. I think a food establishment is a kind of hyper, hyper uh, version of any business. And uh, in as the old Seinfeld joke goes in New York, you know, Rest, the restaurant today is is Indian, and then next month it's Chinese because it closes down, and then it opens as a Greek restaurant. <laughs> so all of that transition is also interesting. Painful, of course, for the people in the industry, but still interesting. You want to talk about pain in the industry. Talk about your former journalism students in Columbia University and the diminishing returns from being a professional journalist. I mean, these people who get back in touch with you. And, and this goes back to the idea that, that I romance this idea of a Persian food you know, cart as the last stand for Robin Farzad. You know, people get in touch with me. They say, would you write a 750 or 800 word guest piece for us? We could pay you $200. I mean, I'm not in it for the pay, clearly, but it's such a departure. It's such a diminishment from when I started in this industry in 2000. And I don't envy the position of, of young people and millennials hustling in this business for smaller returns, smaller security. Almost by default, we have to be um, super prepared on LinkedIn. We have to be hustlers. We have to have many gigs. We have to be constant free agents. I think you're right about most of what you just described. I would say that journalism has never been a profession you went in for, went into for the money, and that's certainly only gotten worse as we've gone along. I remember in the early '90s, if your goal as a freelance writer was to get a dollar a word. And even today, the pr a premium might be a dollar a word. So imagine how every, how much devalued that dollar is. But it's still not easy to get that dollar a word, right? You're getting 20 cents a word or unless you're a superstar. It's very hard to get back to that level. And the way I look at journalism, and so when I was a dean at the Columbia Journalism School, I used to be head of admissions and career services. Those teams used to work with me. And people would ask me, you know, how do you justify... Uh, that huge tuition bill that comes from an Ivy League education in journalism. And by the way, Columbia is the only Ivy League school that even has a journalism master's degree. And what I used to say is that the journalism world is changing, and sure, the jobs aren't what they used to be. Uh, tens of thousands of jobs in America have been lost in journalism. In any other country, if that many journalists lost their jobs, there would be riots in the streets. Uh, but uh, in America, it's kind of that culture that we have and everyone's absorbed it and kind of moved along, uh, much to the detriment of the industry and to people in it. But 
what I what I used to say to them is that the skills of a journalist uh, will last you a lifetime. It's just the way that I'm sure Harvard Law School isn't upset that Barack Obama decided not to be a full-time lawyer. Uh, uh, having a legal education helps you in a variety of ways. Have being uh, uh, being able to communicate well in a smart way, at the in the with the right tools in the right circumstances, can also work in almost any industry. So that's what we used to talk about. And besides, uh, especially what we're seeing now in the world with the attacks on the free press and being told that journalism is uh, all fake news, all of that uh, has inspired more people to go into journalism, just as we saw in the, uh, in the aftermath of Watergate, people wanting to go into journalism because they were inspired. So the kinds of folks who go into media jobs aren't in it for the money, because if they were, they would be doing something else where the returns are more obvious. But, you know, there are people in the world who go into nonprofits. I meet so many people who are wonderful fundraisers and nonprofits who have the exact same skills that work really well on Wall Street, and they could make five times more than they're making, but they're there for a purpose. When I was at the Metropolitan Museum, hiring and keeping digital and tech talent, developers and folks like that for my team was the hardest thing I did because our salary wasn't even in the ballpark. I remember we hired away somebody who, as an intern, was making, uh, you know, about 45% more than what we were offering. As an intern <laughs> downtown, she was making more than uh, we were offering. But she came because she saw a higher purpose in working uh, in the arts world. And there will always be people who do that, uh, despite all the talk of money and uh, billionaires and all, all of these terms. I remember when I was growing up, the word billionaire didn't really exist in the popular imagination. Today, it's uh, uh, you know much more common. So uh, at a time when money and big, big numbers have become more accessible in terms of concepts, they've become harder to reach for uh, everyday people. You know, the solution for me as a, as a 40-something journalist is, uh, to add to your point, is to not focus on the, the dollars and cents in terms of what you're getting paid, but to convince my children that they can eat based on exposure. <laughs> yes, exposure. That's what people will give you. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that I was proud of uh, at, uh, at Columbia was that we really pushed hard to move uh, to a paid internship model for our students uh, from uh, the model that existed in the early 90s. And, and this is not just us, but everybody speaking up makes a difference. And um, many, many uh, journalism places that can afford it are offering paid internships now. Otherwise, as you know, the problem is only rich kids can afford to do free internships, uh, can afford not to take a summer job uh, in you know working for Robin's uh, Persian stand or uh, food stand. But uh, everybody else has to, you know, the only people who can afford the glam jobs at magazine internships or whatever are people who have resources. It's absolutely true. Actually, you know, all kidding aside, I was a, a clerk slash intern at the New York Times right after business school in 2005. And um, just the stress of knowing that um, I think there was a small stipend, but I had to shell out for COBRA, for health insurance. My graduate school health insurance was running out. And you were at such a disadvantage to... Uh, the privileged 
uh, the privileged kids in that position that could just focus on uh, bylines for the summer and networking for the summer. And it only it only became very clear to me after the fact that on, on, a, on a Maslowian level almost, there's just no way as much as they paid lip service to diversity and bringing in people from underrepresented backgrounds to, to change that fact in journalism until you level the playing field with respect to paid internships. I think there are two thoughts on that. One is, I'm sure your Persian family was excited that you're putting your business degree to good use in a media No, they haven't talked to me since. And in fact, Sri, my mother, you know, for everybody to understand this, my mother will not acknowledge me until I become a LinkedIn influencer. There you and go. And I harbor that. I mean, every year I have to show up at, you know, at Florida in the holidays. And she's like, you're not an influencer yet? No, I'm not. So you're not a doctor. You're not an engineer. You're not a LinkedIn influencer. What are you? And uh, that is the, the scarlet um, J for journalists that I still wear. The, the other thought I have about uh, what, what you were describing is that uh, just today, NYU Medical School has announced that they are going to give free scholarships, full rides for every medical student at the medical school. And that's huge news because in the medical field, people, because they're saddled with six-figure debts when they graduate, they don't want to go to small town America, be a doc, you know, a regular doctor, they have to specialize in things that uh, pay better. And same thing in law school, we've seen this as well, right? There aren't people who want to go be prosecutors or go be work at the Legal Aid Society because they can't afford to. So I think there's a big step uh, and a good step from NYU that they're doing this. Uh, I admire them for doing that. And it will make a difference and make it more attractive for do-gooders within Various industries, if they if the debt that they leave with uh, can be improved, I know at Columbia Law School they offered some kind of uh, um, relief for tuition debt if you went into a nonprofit legal job, for example. And I wish every industry would offer versions of this, so that if you graduate from a great business school, uh, but you are willing to work for the Red Cross at uh, a quarter of uh, your classmate's salary it would be okay because you could afford it because you didn't have that huge debt. Mm. Sri, talk to me about that quadrant of uh, employees out there, whether or not they're on LinkedIn, who um, either just lost their job in a shocking way or know that their job's being phased out. What can you do in terms of inoculation first steps? Um, clearly, you know, to take you back to that memorable day where you penned the, the letter on Facebook and posted on Instagram and it was retweeted and picked up everywhere, should you maybe have stepped away from that and just took a, a nice one or two week detox from this and then come back to it and then and then hold the hand of the person out there who either just lost a job or is about to lose a job? Yeah. So in my own case, um, I felt a sense of desperation. As I said, you know, I was the first person in my family that I'd ever heard of who had lost their job. And that tells you something about the Indian community and uh, how people work and think of their world. And I... To be fair, also, I don't have a lot of Indian-American relatives. Most of them are in India, so it's a different place. And that's also changing, by the way, in India itself. But here, I uh, I couldn't afford not to have a job. And the the thing that makes my story even more ridiculous is that I gave up a full-time job at Columbia University where they offered full time, full free tuition for my children at Columbia, half tuition, anywhere in the world and all tax-free dollars. And they helped pay for private school. So it was like $1.1 million that I left on the table. 
And uh, as soon as I say that to people, you know, their jaws drop and they can't believe it. And I tell them, how can you trust anything else I tell you, any advice I give you if I'm the one who walked away from all of this like an idiot? And uh, I was trying something new. And, you know, uh, the idea was that uh, the Met would be a different place and I would make up that money somehow if I stayed for eight years. And I would have. And I loved my time at the Met. Every day I went in there, loved the place. It changed my life, opened my Open the world, open the horizons. It's uh, open my horizons, widen them. But there I was with this enormous guilt that I carry with me to this day. Uh, in terms of I changed changing the trajectory of the lives of my children without their permission, and they've been great about it and never ever said anything. But you can imagine, you know, my twins are now fifteen. And I'm pushing them one day about something or the other. And I say, come on, you got to get that scholarship. And they say to me, but dad, we had the scholarship and you gave it away by moving <laughs> on. And uh, it's such a, so a lot of, you know, when you hear as, as when you were describing me and I'm traveling in all these countries and I'm doing all this stuff, I'm kind of hyper, uh, you know, just hyperactive on this. And people say, why are you doing it like this? And I say, because I have what I call a tuition tumor, uh, in the sense that if I had an actual tumor, I would be running around trying to find a cure, everything I could to get a cure uh, for my condition. And I feel like I have this condition where I wake up every morning and I have to make up this million dollars somehow. And uh, the only way to do that is to work uh, as hard as I possibly can. Now, back to your, uh, your question about for people who've just lost their jobs or just happened in the last few days. Um, my ad advice is, uh, is that uh, it isn't you, right? Everybody says that, but it's in, in a way, it's, uh, they also say, you know, don't take it personally. But in some ways, it is personal because even if 500 people lost their jobs with you at the company, as they say when all these layoffs happen at big companies, uh, know that... Uh, it's okay to take it personally. Know that it's okay uh, to feel angry and disappointed and be mad at the world. And, uh, and uh, you should know that you could have been a great employee hitting every target and uh, loved in your company by everybody else, but somebody may decide it's time for you to go and there's nothing you can do. I remember when the moment it happened to me, I said to the, the then director of the Met, I said, I'll work for free. I'll raise my own salary because I love this place so much. And there was no, there's no such option, right? Like where you work for free and raise your own salary. It doesn't work that way. So I got a package and you know a, 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 a folder with my paperwork in it and was asked to go to HR right, right after that. And so... Um, I, I will say to all all people in that situation that just be uh, that you know take your time to deal with the pain because it is painful and then have a plan because uh, you um, many people fortunately are able to get some kind of cushion or some kind of you know a couple of months severance uh, more less whatever uh, but you can't rely on that I I meet so many people who got a six month severance and they, they think that means they have six months to uh, work on this. But in fact, they, you don't because that's the, your cushion that you need. And it can take six months to get a job, a year to get a job and uh, or a job you want. And therefore, you got to start as soon as you possibly can 
after you detox, as you said, or as after you um, kind of get mad. And, uh, and so the best revenge is, you know, getting even. So, you know, go and, and show them that uh, uh, they were wrong to let you go. But uh, that's not so easy to do. And I, I know that. Uh, I can tell you that I jumped into a job uh, uh, because I thought that this was, a, you know, I was so excited about a, a, the title I got. Uh, and I thought that would make my mom very proud. And uh, here's a tip. Don't take a job for your mom's sake if you're 46 years old. Maybe, you know, 26 or 16. But uh, uh, take a job for yourself. Mm. And, you know, it brings up another thing in that I'm wondering if, if there are these evergreen universal skills that people should pick up anyway. I mean, if they are in that, in that um, perilous position between kind of job insecurity or, or imminently losing a job or already lost a job. For example, I hear a lot about coding or public speaking or maybe take a, an accounting refresher course or things out there that can say that I'm not indeed and in fact a 40 or 50 something um, legacy prospective employee. I think it's about your mindset as much as your skill set. And one of my colleagues at Columbia, the former administrator of the Pulitzer Prizes, Sig Gisler, uh, coined a wonderful term that I take with me every day and I share with the world. And that term is tra-digital, traditional and digital mixed together, where you have in any industry the traditional skill sets, values, knowledge, expertise, connections of that traditional or what you call legacy industry. And on top of that, you have the new skills, the digital overlay over that. So the first word is traditional, and then the digital overlay rather than vice versa. And so if you're, a, uh, you're in advertising, be a tradigital advertising executive. If you're uh, working in the restaurant business, be tradigital there. If you're a journalist, be tradigital there. So in every industry, you can be tradigital. In terms of things that you can take and classes, there are obviously lots of now that they didn't exist 20 years ago, so many free or inexpensive things that you can study and get better at, get smarter at. Uh, LinkedIn bought a wonderful company called Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, Com, and now it's called LinkedIn Learning. And you can learn everything from better Excel tips to uh, lots of things about careers and coaching and, uh, and uh, job hunting and all of that in this one uh, web, you know, within the LinkedIn platform. There are also, uh, if you remember the great MOOC hype of the, tw- of the 2012s and 2013s, the massive open online courses, and the hype has died down, but these courses are there where you can take anywhere in the world free classes from Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, Columbia, et cetera, on Coursera, on edX, on HarvardX, MIT Open Coursera. These are all ways in which you can get better. You can better yourself. And that's one of the things you want to show people, that you are, as I said earlier, you know, you're good at knowing what's going on in your industry. You're, you're looking for trends. And take a class in that trend. So if you, I remember I had come to Columbia Journalism School as a student after having a newspaper career. And every job I saw in the New York Times print want ads is what we had in those days. It would say, cork a plus, cork a plus. And I didn't know what a cork a plus was. But it turns out there was a program called Quark Express, which is a, a desktop publishing software. And they were saying, if you had it, that's a plus. 
And so I took the only course at Columbia where they taught Quark. And uh, it's a very expensive way to learn Quark, to, you know, on a Columbia credit. Uh, but in those, but today, the equivalent of that, you can learn for free or go to a local uh, tech school and learn it or learn it online. And uh, there's no excuse for you not to be improving yourself uh, every day in some way. And especially because job hunting is a full-time job. Uh, one of the things you can do is mix it up by taking one of these courses. And it doesn't always have to be a, uh, a very relevant skill that you take. You know, take a class with a great professor from Princeton in history or, uh, or, or anything like that. Just, you know, get those creative and learning juices flowing because a lot of us have been out of school for a very long time. Sri, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to take you back to an experience at the Met, um, specifically uh, to kind of tease this out and talk about some of the dilemmas with investing in digital. And I think it's germane to the conversation and and your tips, especially in in bettering yourself and becoming a digitalist. (laughs) Um, You did some amazing things over there, and people really watched it from the sidelines. There were effusive profiles of you. You, you. You took them into the 21st century in terms of cataloging. Um, hashtagging, social media, some of the efforts there, Instagramming, uh, uh, making the place indispensable to younger people, not just the 60, 70-something patrons mm-hmm. of the arts that that back a place like the Met with a huge budget. But ultimately, as much as digital is the future of pretty much everyone out there, analog still pays the bills. And so, for example, we just had these people who left the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the newspaper in central Virginia – which is owned by Warren Buffett. And even though this billionaire, this one of the richest people on the planet came in, one of the first teams that were laid off there were the indispensable digital people. And we seem to be at this fork in the road or period of transition where as much as you might want to talk the digital talk, it's not providing revenue. And hence, you as a digital superstar are not a profit center. Do you see what I'm saying? And it's a bind that a lot of prospective job applicants come to me with. I think you're right about this problem, and especially in the media world, uh, it's it's hard to figure this out because the ads that used to be in the newspaper, uh, we used to call them print dollars, became digital dimes and are mobile pennies, right? In the sense that the value of those ads has, has collapsed, uh, and therefore the industry that's supported by advertising, it's much more difficult uh, to make the case uh, and but at some point this will there will be a tipping point. There'll be also a point where there is no such thing as digital. It's just whatever you know. Now we say online retail. Many years from now it'll be retail, and then we'll say bricks and mortar retail to s- differentiate. Or in journalism, you know, it's saying digital journalism. It'll be just journalism, and then it'll be print journalism for those still doing print. Uh, but we're not there yet, and you've identified that problem. I think for a place like the world of the arts. You have to have both the in-person and the online. In my new work, because uh, after I lost two jobs in 12 months, you know, they say that adversity builds character. My character is now amazing. And uh, <laughs> what, I, uh, what I tell people is my clients in this kind of uh, um, consulting role that I now play is that you, you could be great in real life, but you have to have a digital footprint that matches it. If it doesn't match, then you're not going to be as successful. So I'm not at all discounting the IRL stuff in real life, but I am pushing for 
getting that digital overlay, making those connections, linking them together, and you need both in order to succeed, otherwise you'll be left behind. Sri Srinivasan, Tradigitalist Spiritual Leader, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for uh, giving me a chance to share some thoughts. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Charlotte Candler is our research assistant. Special thanks this week to Sarah Gibble-Laska at NPR New York. We are on NPR One, a fine app indeed, and on iTunes at this link, fullderadio.com. Subscribe early and often. Love us on both, please. We are thought laggards, digitally native aliens, friendster influencers since 2003. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. So long.